Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us at Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we continue our current series in Genesis, exploring the meaning of covenant through the account of the flood. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 29, with this message called God's Agreement with the Human Race. I wonder how many of us have wished we could start all over again. Perhaps your business is failing and and you wish you could have avoided some of those financial mistakes you made several years ago. If you could just get a second chance. You know, the same can be said for a failed marriage. If only we hadn't made those mistakes when our marriage was just starting out. Maybe your kids are grown and you wish you could have a second chance to raise them all over again. Some of you haven't spoken to your parents, perhaps, in years. Wouldn't it be nice to start that relationship all over again without the bitterness there is today? Tell you what, go talk to people in prison. They're looking to start again. Just give me another chance. I wonder how we do with a second chance. Oh, you know, please don't misunderstand me. Second chances are wonderful. But we're often so confident that that we never make the same mistakes again, that we've learned our lesson. But what if we got that second chance and ended up just like we are today? Perhaps we discover that, that we would find the reason that we failed is not because the odds were stacked against us or because we were inexperienced when we were young and lacked wisdom. But what if we were to find that the reason things are in a mess is because we're broken and fallen and alienated from God and driven by dark forces we simply can't contain? You know, when Noah emerged from the ark, his family in tow, he emerged not as Adam back in the Garden of Innocence. He did emerge as a man who walked with God, but also as a man with all of Adam's fallen race, knew the reality of sin living within. And his sin also lived in his children and would live in his grandchildren and so forth. Sin, the very thing that would destroy the human race, was still there. And that was horrible. Genesis 9 is the story of Noah and his family after the flood, after they got out of the ark. This is the story of starting again. Let's read Genesis 9, 1 to 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall fall upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. So this is the story of starting again. But in this new beginning, it's not the lessons that man has learned from his past mistakes that are the difference. It's rather that in mercy, God has chosen so to act so that human beings will not repeat the same cycle of evil as before. Notice first that God places great value on human life. The book of Genesis began by telling us that every human being is the special project of God. You are not an accident of nature. You and I are created in God's image. That means we have value. We're not free to do away with human life when the unborn, the handicapped, or the elderly are difficult. We can't put them away. Every single person bears the imprint of God. 
but we also share in Adam's sin. The disease of rebellion against God is found in our souls, and that disease leads to death. Not only our personal death, but death in all our relationships. And sin left unchecked leads to judgment day. That's the tragedy of the human race. Great potential and horrible weakness. And in this new beginning, God commands Noah to be fruitful all over again. Have children, he says, team upon the earth. Now, this is the same command God gave to Adam and Eve, fill the earth. And we might say, but why? If we're really that sinful, perhaps God should have said, let's quit with the having of children, but he doesn't. Human life continues to be of great value before God. It has value regardless of our sin. Now, I wish we could grasp that. Now, I've seen bumper stickers that say, the more people I meet, the more I like my dog. What a horrible thing to say. In response, notice this command of God to fill the earth with people. And from this, we should learn two very important lessons. First, God is pleased when we multiply because of the worth of human life. Outside of God himself, nothing is more precious than humanity. And from this comes a second lesson. God is pleased when we recognize this preciousness of human life and so form a deep, abiding respect for all of human life. Look again at verses 3 and 4. You know, up till now, the book of Genesis said nothing about eating meat. Apparently, eating meat was only given to Noah after the flood. But even while meat is offered to the human race now, it comes with a word of warning. Don't eat it with blood still in it. Now, some people have taken this as a command to do with health concerns, but I think that misses the point. The law of Moses would state the following, and I'm reading from Deuteronomy 12:23. But be sure that you do not eat the blood because the blood is the life, and you must not eat the life with the meat. You know, in ancient Israel, the idea of life was connected to blood. Your life was in your blood. And that, by the way, is why we remember when we have communion, that we celebrate the blood of Christ. His blood shed on the cross was the pouring out of his life. And the command to refrain from eating the blood of animals was a respect for all life. And when you ate meat, you were to pour out the blood of the animal to show that you understood that their life was poured out so that you could live. But remember that animals are not like man. They are not in the image of God. And so comes the command of verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man or pours out man's life, by man shall his blood be shed. What God now institutes is a clear distinction between the blood of an animal and the blood of a man. And he does so to showcase how valuable is the blood of man. See, many Christians have argued about whether this command, that is the command for capital punishment in the case of murder, is still valid today. Should Christians support the death penalty? Now, that's a controversial question. And when we have this debate, which is a worthy one to have, let's remember the context of the death penalty in the Bible. First, let us understand that the death penalty is given out of respect for life. Life is so precious that to take it will cost you the most precious thing that you have, that is your own life. And second, in the Old Testament, capital punishment was not easily applied. You could not, for instance, condemn anyone to death on the basis of circumstantial evidence. 
You had to have two or three witnesses, and then the witnesses themselves had to put the murderer to death. And then, if the witnesses had been found to perjure themselves, they would forfeit their own life. And by the way, Deuteronomy 19 actually applies the law of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth to the false witnesses in a murder trial. If your false testimony results in the death of an innocent man, you yourself will be put to death. So then, practically, the Old Testament allows capital punishment in only those murders that were personally witnessed by more than one person. In other words, if you're going to risk a wrong, that is, you're risking either allowing a guilty man to go free or putting to death an innocent man, you would risk in favor of letting the guilty go free. That's how important life is in every case. Now, fast forward this to the current debate. Most examples of the application of the death penalty that I know of today simply ignore this biblical counsel. The Old Testament will not allow anyone to be put to death on circumstantial evidence alone. Human life is far too precious to allow for one person to wrongly be put to death. And the entire point of the death penalty is not to teach vengeance, but to teach the value of human life. And as an aside, when we see ISIS in our day beheading victims because they do not agree with their theology, we see the very strains of the godless human story of the kind of barbarism that existed before the flood that God is determined to curtail. Now, we know that there will be in our day, there will be an ISIS, a, a Hitler, a Stalin, a Mao, and a Pol Pot. But even though this prevails in one place and at one time, God so arranges things after the flood to develop in the human race a deep repugnance of those who will not respect life. And that's a universal repugnance. There are laws that are put into place that limit the kind of activities that we see happening in the violent places of the earth. And that, by the way, is why those of us who hold fast to the gospel of Jesus find ourselves to be fully and completely pro-life. We are so in everything, from opposing abortion to loving children to caring for the helpless and the elderly and to supporting those laws that protect human life and bring dignity to every sphere of human life. More when we come back. After the disastrous flood, God gives Noah and his family a chance to rebuild, to start their lives over again. But a detail that we might miss here in God's instructions is an emphasis on the value and sanctity of human life. To God, every human life is precious, even with our inherent sinfulness. Right after the break, Dr. Neufeld will reveal how God established his covenant with Noah through a sign. June is back to the Bible Canada's fiscal year end. As such, it's a crucial month for the ministry financially. Despite the financial impact of the last couple of years, Back to the Bible Canada has still been able to provide sound Bible teaching and engagement resources and even produce new ministry resources thanks to the loyal support of our listeners. This year, our fiscal year-end target is $409,000. And to help us reach that, Several generous ministry supporters have graciously offered to match your donations this month up to $100,000. That means your gift 
has double the impact. We'd be so grateful if you might consider helping us achieve our financial target this fiscal year end. To make your gift today or for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's move on to Genesis 9, 8-17. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember the covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh." When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Again, we notice that in the story of Noah, the word covenant is used. We notice that God is making a covenant not just with Noah, but with the entire human race. God will not allow conditions on earth to return to what they were before the flood. And then for the first time, we see that God gives a sign of the covenant, a perpetual symbol meant to remind us that he has entered into an agreement with a human race. You know, for most of us, this isn't new. God forms a covenant and then not only remembers his covenant, but finds a way so that we should also remember the covenant. He places a rainbow in the clouds as a sign of the covenant. Now, some have postulated that the atmosphere must have changed in order to make rainbows a physical reality, and that does sound quite plausible. But I'm, for my part, not going to give attention to the science of the matter, but to the sign itself. So, for instance, when you and I partake in communion, we should see the Lord's table as a sign of the covenant. God has promised us with a new covenant in his blood to forgive our sins. And every time we partake in communion, we are reminded that this is indeed so. In the same way, every time we see a rainbow, we should be reminded of the agreement that God has made with the entire human family. He has promised that he will protect us from ourselves. He has promised to hold evil at bay and make this world livable. That's his promise. Now to verses 18 to 23. The sons of Noah who came forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, the natural question is, what did Ham actually do? You know, the text doesn't tell us. We know that Noah was drunk and in his drunkenness lay naked in his tent, probably because he was so drunk that he didn't know what he was doing. 
You know, some commentators believe that the change in the earth's atmosphere made fermentation a possibility, and Noah, who had never tasted alcohol, became drunk by accident. And others tell us that it's because Noah sinned. They find a parallel between Noah and Adam. Well, we're not actually told what happened, and speculations really get us nowhere. But what did Ham do? You know, answers have again ranged from voyeurism to some sexual act committed with either Noah in his drunkenness or with Ham's mother, that is, Noah's wife. But I think that the Bible intends to not tell us the details. It's enough for us to know that something indecent was done. After that, it's just improper to ask. And as we read this account, we should immediately see that sin is very much alive in the new world. Yes, Noah's family is given a chance to start all over again, and they have been rescued by God, but we see that sin made it into this new world. But I see something else here. Every human covenant is immediately tested by human sin. God has promised to restrain evil, and yet evil in some form is immediately present. You know, it's amazing how this is true. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and after that, Abraham went down to Egypt and lied about his wife. God made a covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai, and while Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments on the mountain of God, Israel was making a golden calf and indulging in drunkenness and orgies at the bottom of the mountain. God told David that he would bless him and extend his kingdom, and next we find David committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. Jesus tells his disciples that his cup is the new covenant in his blood, and next we find Peter denying that he ever knew Jesus at all. Every covenant, every agreement that God has ever made with us is tested by our own sin. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You'll remember the great moments that you've had with God, followed by your own failure and your own sin. That's what's happened here. God makes an agreement with all of humanity to keep evil at bay, and no sooner has he done that when some form of indecent act is committed by Ham against his father. But there's more. All human sin leads to the same set of consequences. Let's read verses 24 to 29. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. You know, the parallels between Genesis 9 and Genesis 3 and 4 are really quite staggering. In Genesis 3 and 4, Adam and Eve sin, their son murders his brother, and the family is divided, leading to the division of mankind, the building of the city of man, and ultimately to Judgment Day. And in Genesis 9, Noah's son sexually violates, it appears, someone, perhaps even his own father. The family is divided, leading to the division of mankind and ultimately to the building of the Tower of Babel. Here is humanity's second chance, and we're doing the same things all over again. See, that's the problem with second chances. Listen to the kinds of prayers we pray. Lord, if you give me a second chance with my husband or my wife, I promise never to treat him or her in the way I did before. But if the truth were known, we'd act in the same way. 
Lord, if you give me a second chance, I promise never to lose my temper again. Lord, if you give me a second chance, I promise never to fall into sexual sin again. Lord, if you only give me a second chance. See, the problem doesn't reside in the amount of chances we get. It resides in our hearts. Genesis 9 reminds us that what we need more than anything else is heart surgery. We need a new heart, a heart that loves the things of God and doesn't love our own way anymore. We need redemption. We need a solution to our sin. But even while that's true, God's covenant, God's binding agreement with the human race still stands. God is determined to restrain human evil. He is determined to never allow the godly line to be extinguished, and he is determined never to destroy the earth with a flood again. What we have in Genesis 9 is God's intention to bless the creation that he greatly loves in spite of our sin. In Matthew 5, 45, Jesus, speaking about the actions of the Father, said, He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The point being that God loves and even blesses those who are evil. Now, while that's true, that Canaan is cursed and that the descendants of Canaan become those people who are driven from the promised land so many years later by Joshua, it's also true that when Jesus died, he took upon himself the curse that was ours for our sin. God finds a way to bring salvation to those who have no place at his table. And that brings us back to the story of second chances. What we need is grace. What we need is a redeemer. John, I was really blessed by that message today. It really challenged me because it doesn't matter how many chances I ask for if I don't look at what the real issue is. And that's our heart condition, isn't it? It sure is. Um, You know, that's why we need grace. I mean, the fact is that there is a darkness in every single human heart because we are the fallen children of Adam, and we simply sin against God and each other. We do. We need grace. We need covenant. We need the kind of relationship with God is that is life transforming. We don't need a multiplicity of chances. We need God. That's the whole message that we get from the book of Genesis. Perhaps you've gained a deeper appreciation for God's covenant with humanity today through the account of Noah and the flood. We hope this study has enriched your walk and given you a better understanding of God's covenant with his people. Even with the new start that God gave Noah and his family, we see the effects of sin in their lives almost immediately. Covenant reminds us of why we so desperately need the gospel of grace and why we need a heart change. Let's stop to reflect on this truth and not forget that our only hope is through an authentic relationship with Jesus. Tomorrow on the program, be sure to join us again as we continue our series in Genesis, looking at chapter 10 with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In Deuteronomy 11:19, we find instruction on our commitment to the teaching of the Bible. We are to teach His Word to our children, wherever we are, at any time of day. And that's the significance of our 11:19 Fellowship monthly partner program. 
So if you choose to join this monthly program, you're partnering with us to ensure that Bible teaching is being taught faithfully and abundantly. One monthly partner said, if your heart is to see Christians grow in maturity in their walk with the Lord and to see lives transformed and turned towards Jesus, I would encourage you to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada through their 1119 Fellowship Program. To join or for more information, or to offer a single gift towards our dollar-for-dollar fiscal year-end match campaign, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.